38. And in handling these insects, great care must be taken, as cases are known of blindness having been caused by the spines being carried into the eyes by the fingers. Let us now turn to the liquid squirts with which some caterpillars are provided. Our spurge hot caterpillar, for example, when threatened, squirts from the mouth a spray of poison. In our illustration figure 5 it is shown repelling the attack of the dreaded ichneumon fly by means of this spray. The quaint puss moth, which many chatterbox readers must have seen, can squirt out an irritant fluid, generally supposed to be formic acid, from the mouth, when alarmed, and this, if it enters the eye, causes acute pain. The caterpillars of the swallow-tailed moths, when irritated, give out an offensive smell, but they are unable to spray. Many beetles have the power of forcing drops of blood from a minute hole in one of the legs. This blood is saturated either with a fluid which causes a burning sensation on everything it touches, or with an intolerable odor, in either case the result is the same they are given a wide berth by all who have discovered their power. The little ladybird beetle, for example, sends out, when frightened, a tiny drop of a yellow fluid from the knee joint, which has a smell like opium. The Japanese violin beetle gives off a fluid which is said to paralyze the fingers for 24 hours. WPPYCRAFT. FZSALS. The black swan. The black swan is an Australian bird, and was not known in Europe until that continent began to be explored. Although black swans had been often spoken of before that time as a kind of fabulous monster, the ordinary white, or mute, swan, which graces our rivers and lakes, has been admired, and even protected by laws, for many centuries and its plumage is so beautifully and uniformly snowy that we can hardly be surprised if people thought that all swans must be white, and should regard a black swan as impossible, like the two-necked swan sometimes painted upon in signs, but travelers have discovered many strange animals in unexplored countries, and we now know that there are not only black swans, but even swans that have a black neck and a white body, the plumage of the black swan, with the exception of the quill feathers, which are white is entirely black. The bill and the skin between the eyes are a beautiful red, which contrasts handsomely with the black feathers. The tail of the bird is very short, and, next to the color of the plumage, this is the chief peculiarity which distinguishes it from the white swan. The black swan frequents the swamps and secluded bays on the Australian coast. It is not a very shy bird, and is frequently seen by the sportsman and the camper out. It enjoys the companionship of its kind and congregates usually in small flocks. August and September are, it is believed, the breeding months, and shortly before this the swans leave the swamps and seek the nesting grounds, which are usually on the islands in the bays. Western Port Bay, not far from Melbourne, is one of their favorite haunts. The nest is a collection of reeds, and in this the female swan lays five or six eggs of a whitish-gray color, and a little smaller than those of our white swan. The black swan is rather strong upon the wing, and, when flying, it frequently utters a musical cry, but, being a heavy bird, its flight is very exhausting, and it appears to have more confidence in its webbed feet than its wings, it is said that when it is startled it tries to escape by swimming, if it can, rather than by taking flight, as the birds breed upon islands on the coast, they may occasionally swim out, or be drifted out, to sea, a short time ago. Two black swans were picked up off Norfolk Island, they were miles away from the nearest part of Australia, and they must have been driven from their native land by winds and currents until they were lost. 
they were greatly exhausted when taken up, but a bath in fresh water and a good supply of food soon put them right again. This incident is not only interesting because it shows the endurance of the swans and how long a journey they may sometimes make almost by accident, but because it illustrates the way in which animals which are natives of one country may be carried to a new one. If these two swans could have continued on to Norfolk Island, which is about 900 miles from Australia, and, after arriving there, could have recovered their health, made a nest, and reared a brood of young ones, then there might have been black swans in Norfolk Island as well as in Australia. These swans were probably too much exhausted to have accomplished this long journey, but we have many reasons for believing that animals have often been unwillingly driven by winds and currents to new homes across the seas, and have thus helped to extend their species over a larger portion of the earth. W.A. Atkinson, Afloat on the Dogger Bank, A Story of Adventure on the North Sea and in China. Continued from page 356. Chapter XIX. When Ping Wan returned, he locked the door and signed to his friends to come and sit in the middle of the room. I have bought some offerings for us to make to the ghosts, he said, and produced from his pocket a handful of pieces of colored paper. It doesn't look very satisfying food, Charlie remarked, but I dare say that it is good enough for ghosts. This is not food, Ping Wan replied and, as he spoke, he took from the heap several round pieces of paper it is money, our ghosts, according to the belief of our wise men, lead a life, in some invisible world, which is very much like what they live here, but, as they don't appear to have a mint, we offer them money this money, tonight we shall have the pleasure of burning those pieces of round paper, which my countrymen believe pass in the form of money into the ghosts possession as they disappear from our sight, we will not, however, confine our gifts to money, here are houses, carts, wheelbarrows, horses, and suits of clothes, all made of paper, to be burned, the ghosts, my countrymen think, will find them very useful, Ping Wan was now in the humor for talking, and held his friends interested nearly the whole of the afternoon, just before darkness came on they had some tea, and then paid the landlord and departed, the people by now were flocking, or had already gone, to that part of the town where the feast was to be given, and consequently the pages and Ping Wan found the track round the ten-foot wall of Chin Chu's house almost deserted, for this they were very thankful indeed, as it gave them a better opportunity for examining the wall, this will be the place, Ping Wan said when they had gone about halfway round the wall, he pointed to several holes in it just large enough to insert the toes or fingers, after taking note of the surroundings so that they would be able to find the spot again, they continued their journey until they reached the place from which they had started. Now for the feast, Ping Wang said, quietly, and they started off in the direction of the ghost's feast. It was a merry, jovial crowd they joined. Most of the people were carrying provisions as well as offerings for the ghosts, and Ping Wang, not wishing that he and his friends should be conspicuous, purchased three legs of pork. Then they walked on again, but, before long, came to a large and excited crowd gathered round a poster on the outside wall of a Jaws house or temple. Ping Wang, leaving the pages in a dark corner, hurried forward to read the placard, and, to his horror, found that his fears were realized. It was an anti-foreign poster, and the following is what he read, We publicly announce that the foreigners who entered our middle kingdom many years ago have made plans to seize our territory. They ignore the teachings of Confucius and have already taught the people their false religion, 
and have practiced their sorceries upon them. Now the right-minded and superior men of our land are boiling with rage at the harm which the foreigners have done, and are determined to kill them. Every foreigner must be killed, and every house, shop, and church which they inhabit must be destroyed. Anyone who shelters a foreigner will be killed, and all converts to the foreign religion who do not recant immediately will be executed. Kill the foreigners who are hoping to seize our country and introduce their barbarian customs. Kill the men who have made friends with them. Kill the foreigners. Kill the foreigners. Ping Wan turned away. He knew that the placard would have the desired effect of rousing the people to a state of frenzy. Already hundreds of people were shouting, Kill the foreigners. The cry was, by this time, familiar to Charlie and Fred, and there was no need for them to ask Ping Wan what was printed on the poster. By a slight movement of his head, Ping Wang signed to the pages to follow him. He walked a few yards down the crowded street, fearing every moment that his friends would be detected by the mob and killed before his eyes, and then turned into a narrow lane, dark and almost deserted. The people had evidently flocked into the main road. He sighed with thankfulness, and, having glanced round and seen that the pages were following, he quickened his speed. It was some years since he had traversed the by streets of his native town, but they were not changed to any great extent, and he had no difficulty in finding his way. He led his friends through street after street gloomy and squalid places, but happily deserted by the residents. At last they came into a main road which led to the town gates, not the ones at which they had entered early that morning, but those on the other side. He could see them in the distance. They were open and he was tempted to lead his friends straight out into the country, and away from the danger which threatened them. At any rate, it seemed to him that he would be doing an unfriendly action if he did not tell them that escape was still easy. There are the gates, he said in an undertone. Shall we go out and hurry off to Barton? Mumber Charlie said, firmly, not until we have got your treasure. But do you know what was on that poster? We have a very good idea, I fancy, an order to kill all foreigners. Was it not? Yes. Shall we escape? Mumber hurry on to Chinchu's. Ping Wang again led them through narrow, dirty streets until they caught sight of Chinchu's house. When they were about fifty yards from it, they saw the gates thrown open and the Mandarin's palanquin borne out. From the shouts of the man with the whip who ran ahead of it, they knew that Chinchu was inside. That is good, Ping Wang whispered. Now that Chinchu is out, the servants will start gambling and smoking opium. We need not fear being disturbed by them. In less than five minutes they arrived at the spot where they had decided to start their undertaking. They looked up and down the road, and, seeing no one about, Ping Wan climbed the wall. It is very easy, he said. When he reached the top, the drop on the other side is only about six feet. He disappeared into Chin Chu's grounds and Fred at once scaled the wall. Charlie was about to follow him, and had already climbed five or six feet from the ground when he heard someone approaching, and, before he was able to decide whether to jump down or continue climbing, his left foot was seized and tugged so viciously that he came down with a rush on top of his assailant. In an instant he was on his feet again, ready to defend himself from any further attack. Looking down at the person on whom he had fallen, he saw to his astonishment that it was the cart woman who had caused him so much annoyance before. She lay glaring at Charlie, speechless and panting. But he had barely recognized her when he heard a shout of foreigners, and looking round saw the woman's husband running at him. He jumped quickly aside, 
and to defend himself snatched up one of the legs of pork, which had been left on the ground, he rushed at the Chinaman, who, being a great coward, immediately turned about and fled, but Charlie was upon him in a moment, and with the leg of pork dealt him a blow on the back of the head, which sent him sprawling on the ground, a knife fell from his hand and Charlie at once seized it, the woman, seeing what had befallen her husband, scrambled to her feet and toddled to him shouting, foreigners, as she went, to prevent her being heard Fred clapped his hand over her mouth, and, in spite of her biting it, kept it there, meanwhile Ping Wong and Fred had scrambled back, hearing the noise, they joined Charlie, and between them managed to tie the Chinaman's pigtail round the woman's neck, so that neither could move without difficulty, now let us leave them, Ping Wong said, and they started running, but before they had gone many yards they heard the Chinaman and his wife shouting frantically, foreigners, killed the foreigners, their shouts were heard by others, also, and a man rushed forward to stop them, but Charlie raised his knife threateningly and the fellow ran, nevertheless, he too shouted foreigners, and, gathering together some friends, started in pursuit, at every few yards others joined in the chase, where are you going to take us, Charlie asked of Ping Wong, after glancing back at the mob pursuing them, to the gates, Ping Wong answered, this is our way, they turned into one of the narrow streets which they had traversed earlier in the evening, and, as they ran at full speed along it, here and their men came out of their houses to see what the noise meant, they heard the shouts of foreigners, but the average Chinaman has a great respect for his skin, and consequently not one of the men who saw the pages and Ping Wong rush by attempted to stop them, I'm done up, Ping Wong gasped before long, our only chance is to hide, the next street was a short one, and the pages were surprised after what Ping Wong had said about being tired to see him sprint along it, they followed close on his heels, and when he stopped at the end of it, they did the same, instead of crossing the wide road which faced them, Ping Wong turned to the right, and after walking quickly for about 30 yards made another turn to the right which brought them into a narrow street running parallel with the one down which they had sprinted, there was no one visible, all the residents were evidently at the feast, Ping Wong stopped at the second house and pressed his hand against the door, which opened, he peeped into the place, and, seeing no one, entered stealthily, the pages following quickly and equally cautiously, as soon as they were in Ping Wong shot the bolt of the door, it was a dark and dirty room in which the fugitives found themselves, and by the faint light of a lantern they could see that it was a poverty-stricken place, continued on page 374, cruisers in the clouds, excise, modern aeronauts and their airships, at an electrical exhibition held at Paris in 1881, most of the sightseers were very interested in a little model balloon which had been made by two famous balloonists, Messrs. Gaston and Albert Tissandier. It was quite unlike any balloon ever seen before. The silk bag for containing the gas was long and pointed at either end, and floated horizontally in the air, so that at a little distance it was not unlike a fish without a tail. Though a sheet of canvas, shaped like a fish's tail, was placed beneath the balloon at the rear end to be used as a rudder, suspended by a number of slender ropes, which met under the center of the gas bag or the car for the sailors and a small electric engine for driving a powerful screw, the wings of which striking against the air would propel the ship at the rate of some nine feet a second. The baby balloon may be said to have set the example for all modern airships, though others something like it had been built before. Two years later Messrs. 
Tisandier made a large copy of their model, and ascended on October 8, 1883, as the screw succeeded in driving the balloon forward at a greater speed than that at which the wind was blowing, they were able to steer a course, just as the steamboats on the St. Lawrence River are able to shoot the rapids in safety by putting on full steam and over racing the current, Messrs. Tisandier repeated their experiment in November, 1883 and actually drove their balloon against the wind for a short distance, as night overtook them while on this triumphant journey they did not attempt to return by balloon to Paris, but descended in the country two hours after leaving the capital, such was the first successful effort to steer a balloon, and it was not long before many aeronauts were following in their steps, in 1884 the airship France, with Captains Krebs and Renard on board, was watched by a large crowd as it sailed from Mutant, near Paris, and after a wonderful flight came back against the wind to the place from which it started, five more similar voyages were made, and in each the France showed great obedience to the rudder and sail, but all these experiments were very expensive, and involved great danger, it was found, moreover, that the machinery necessary for driving the screw could not be made light enough to be really suitable, thus there was not much heard about steerable balloons until some years later, when M. Sandas Dumont began his cruises and many strange adventures he has had, instead of the electric engine used by the Tissandiers, he employed the small petrol engine out of a motor tricycle, with this he started on his aerial voyages, but before we follow him we must look at his ship for a moment, from each end of the long balloon he allows a cord to hang, supporting a small weight, these are to enable him to alter his course upward or downward, if he wishes to travel upwards, he pulls into the car, by means of a thin cord, the weight which is hanging in front, this, of course, allows the head of the balloon to rise, at the same time changing the angle of the screw in the rear so that it drives the balloon upward, when he pulls the rear weight into the car, the reverse takes place, the car, the engine, and the screw are all suspended from the silk envelope by piano wires, so that it looks, from the ground, as though M. Santa's Dumont were moving about in a spider's web. On one of the first cruises the balloon behaved very well while floating at a great height, but when he descended into denser atmosphere, the gas contracted in the long thin bag, and he saw with horror that it was doubling up like a pocket knife. This made some of the cords so much tighter than others that at any moment they might cut through the silk and send him to the earth like a stone, yet it was no use throwing out ballast though to rise into thinner atmosphere might have put the balloon right again, I must descend sooner or later, thought the aeronaut, so why not now, beneath him lay a grassy stretch of country on which a number of boys were flying their kites, as he rapidly drew nearer, M. Santa's Dumont, leaning from his basket, called to them to seize the guide rope, which had already reached the ground, and run with it as fast as they could against the wind, the boys were sharp-witted, and obeyed at once, the speed of the descent was checked by the rush of wind, and the voyager landed in safety. Misadventures of this sort have only increased the keenness with which M. Sandas Dumont pursues his studies. The principal triumph he has yet secured was one some three years ago, when he steered his balloon round the Eiffel Tower and back to the starting point. It only meant a distance of some 14 miles in haul, but it carried him to fame and honor in half an hour and the government of his native country Brazil had a gold medal struck to commemorate the event. Never before had the power of navigating the skies been proved so thoroughly, but it was not accomplished without several unsuccessful attempts. 
On one occasion the engine stopped when the winning post was only a few yards away. Another time, the balloon lost gas through a faulty valve, and some of the suspension wires slackened so much that they caught in the whirling screw, which was beating itself into shreds. The traveler instantly stopped the engine, and found himself the next moment drifting dangerously near to the Eiffel Tower. It was safer under the circumstances to let the ship sink, and a few minutes later, like a vessel being driven on the rocks, the aeronaut's car crashed against the roof of a large hotel, the framework of the airship lodging itself at last over a deep courtyard, with its occupant in mid-air. From this perilous position he was rescued by a party of firemen. In each of these misadventures M. Santas Dumont reads some lesson for the improvement of his ships, so that the day may come when he will be able to show us an aerial vessel in which even timid people might travel without anxiety. The Slate Story said the pencil to the slate, we've been strangers, sir, of late, and tis many weeks, I fancy, since we met, there was surely something wrong to have parted us so long, but if I'd heard the reason, I forget, then the slate looked blank, and said, with a voice of pain and dread, ah, yes, for days we've both been in disgrace, for master Johnny Scott shunned the lesson he had got, and used us both to draw a funny face, now, of course, I needn't say that such deeds will never pay a fact which Johnny realizes now for the picture that he drew, with a sunny smile or two, was rubbed out with a frown upon his brow, and the teacher said that day we should both be put away till Johnny understood his duty plain, and that he now has done, for I hear his laugh of fun, the cloud has passed, and here we are again, puzzlers for wise heads, 16, anagrams, names of famous monarchs, 1, a dear next, Lag at her. 2. Real name ch3. Quiz. He bet a needle. 4. A razor. Shut in foes. 5. I into 10 tear me. 6. Part call ecjb answer on page 395. Answer to puzzle on page 339. 15. RN right post Wolverhampton. Left post Rachel Nation. Round 1. Walter. Round 2. Linnet. Round 3. Ermelo. Round 4. Hawaii. Round 5. Medusa. Round 6. Tahiti. Round 7. Norman. Presence of mind. A general had been very unfortunate in a battle, and his defeat so preyed on his mind that he lost his reason. He had to be kept confined in a room in his own house and an attendant was always near to wait upon him, and to prevent him from doing harm. One day, an officer who had been paying him a friendly visit happened to leave his sword and scabbard in the general's room. As soon as the officer had gone, the general seized the sword. Then he rushed at the man who attended him, saying, Now I can cut off your head. The attendant answered, Oh, sir, anybody can cut off one head. It would be a stroke more worthy of you to cut off two. Wait a moment till I go for another. To this the general consented, and the man quickly made his escape from the room. Needless to say, he returned with help and overcame the madman. He owed his life to his ready presence of mind in this strange peril. Animal makeshifts. True anecdotes. Be friends in need. The goodwill shown by one animal to another in time of need is an example to us all. Very lowly creatures are able to understand, and are ready to help each other like brothers with no other motive than their comrades need, and no other reward than the power to relieve it.
there is a kind of beetle which makes a ball or pellet of manure, in the middle of which it places its egg. This it rolls towards a hole previously dug, and drops it in. One of these beetles was seen painfully toiling to roll its little ball out of a cart rut, into which it had tumbled. He was trying with all his tiny might, but all in vain. After pushing it up the side a great many times, the ball rolling back again, he went off to a manure heap close by, and came back with two other beetles. His neighbors, all three set to work shoulder to shoulder, and between them shoved the ball out of the rut, having done as they would be done by. The assistants then returned to their own business. Sir Frederick Doyle, while watching some wasps eating plums on his trees, knocked one down without killing it. The wasp fell into a large spider's web below. To his surprise a fellow wasp instantly flew down to the rescue. He poised himself close to the spider's web, whirling his wings till they looked like glittering rainbows, so fast that their shape could not be seen. This was to prevent them from being caught in the sticky web, and all the time he was striking deft and rapid blows at the threads that held his friend fast. At length he cut him out, but the poor rescued insect fell down to die upon the ground. The observer adds, I was so much struck with this proof of a heart as well as a brain in the case of wasps that I not only spared the B.C. wasp who rescued his friend, but also the rest of the troop, and left the plums to their fate. The weasel, that terrible foe to rabbits and rats, is not famous for good temper, yet a pretty tale is told of one of them. A gentleman was riding home, when his horse trod on a weasel, which was unable to get out of the way in time. The poor little animal's spine seemed to be hurt, and it could not move its hind legs. Presently another weasel came out of the hedge by the roadside, and went up to the injured one. After carefully inspecting it, the second weasel picked up the first and carried it to the side of the road, out of the way of the traffic, where he gently laid it down. Wild elephants seem unable to bear the sight of suffering friends without an attempt to save them, and in particular the wild herds of these noble beasts love and protect their leaders. When pressed by hunters, they place him in the midst and crowd in front of him, eager to save his life at the expense of their own. Professor Romains gives an instance of a fine tusker which, when badly wounded, was promptly surrounded by his companions. They supported him between their shoulders, and actually succeeded in covering his retreat to the forest. Birds are very generous towards each other in these ways, particularly such as live in communities together. If one rook of a colony gets into trouble, all the rest are worried about him directly. A great mob of rooks, living in trees near the river Ryerwell, were seen chasing each other playfully on the wing, dancing idly with joy and pleasure at the coming spring, when one of them accidentally knocked against another, and fell into the river below. In an instant a chorus of distress was raised, the birds hovered over their friend, as he struggled in the water, with cries of sorrow and alarm and seemed to be giving him advice in some fashion of their own. At any rate, urged by their voices, he sprang into the air, and by one strong effort managed to reach a point of rock. The shouts of joy at his safety echoed far and wide. Much tenderness is shown by grown-up birds to helpless orphans in need of their aid. A redbreast was mentioned lately in science gossip as doing a deed of kindness towards a young starling one bitterly cold morning. The starling had left the nest and was sitting frightened and shivering in a cellar, with a red head cracked, too weak and hungry to fly. In vain kindly human hands offered it bread, it refused all food, till a little hungry robin came down on his daily visit to the house and spied the baby bird, sitting on one leg, calling his absent mother. Off he went, 
and soon came darting back with a word or which was gratefully accepted. When the beggar bird had been fed, both flew away. Seagulls have been seen assisting a wounded comrade over the wave, and a crane, seeing one of its fellows shot, placed itself under the sufferer in such a way as to prevent his falling to the ground, then, weighted as he was, he bore him away beyond gunshot, in sickness, too. Not only monkeys, dogs, cats, and the higher animals, but the lowest also, as well as birds, show good feeling. On a salt lake in Utah lived an old and completely blind pelican, which was very fat, and must, says Darwin, have been well federal for a long while by his companions. Crows feed their blind friends, and so do rats, and a case is on record of a barn door cock who did the same thing. These and similar facts which could be multiplied by thousands, prove how beautiful a spirit is that which our great Creator breathed into even the humblest of His creatures, and how worthy, for His sake, they are of our reverence and regard, Edith Carrington, in the snow, step out, Jack, there's a mile yet before we get to the station, yes, and a mile in this snow counts for three, answered Jack, but we have nearly an hour for it, we shall catch the train right enough, but it is a heavy snowstorm and no mistake, and then the two young fellows plodded resolutely on, it was Christmas Eve, and they were on their way to catch the mail train to town, and were looking forward to a right merry time with their people at home, but somehow today everything seemed against them, first of all, they were detained beyond time at the bank, in which they both were clerks, and so missed the last train to town from their little branch station, there was just time, however, for them to catch a train on the main line, but to do this they had to take a shortcut through Lord Ravensmere's woods, and the thick snow having covered the paths, they lost their way several times, and this, of course, delayed them again, however, the walk was nearly over, the station lamps could be seen twinkling in the valley below, and the young fellows were hurrying on, when they heard a faint cry, help, help, coming seemingly from the wood alongside, they stopped, and listened, again came the cry, help, by the big oak, both made a dash for the oak, it was but a few paces off, and there, almost hidden in the deep snow, lay a young fellow of about their own age, I'm Lord Ravensmere's son, take me up to the castle, if you can, he said, feebly, I'm done, and, having said this, he fainted away, and lay like dead on the snowy path, the castle, that's a mile off, he will freeze to death if we leave him here and go for help, said Jack, the elder of the two lads, we must carry him, we can do it between us, said Ralph, but I say, old fellow, we shall miss our train, and have to return to those dreary lodgings of ours for Christmas, Jack nodded, and then, without another word, the two lads lifted the unconscious youth, and somehow, with it,